As we read this portion of scripture, this is why he's worthy of all praise and why we cry out to him in worship. First Peter chapter four, beginning in verse one, when you got it, say so. And it says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sin. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling as each one has received a gift. Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence that is in this place. And Holy Spirit, we surrender to you and we ask that you would continue to move in our midst in these next few moments that you would speak unto our hearts. Lord God, that you would be glorified in this day, Lord. I pray that we would not solely be hearers of your word, but doers of it. That we would not solely respond with the mental acknowledgement, but that our lives would respond to you in faith and in obedience, Lord God. Transform us, God, into your image, into your likeness more today. That when we leave this place, that we reflect you better and bring you greater glory for you alone are worthy. In Jesus' mighty name we pray and someone said, Amen. you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. <clears throat> As we're continuing on in our study in 1 Peter, we're dealing with this topic of suffering again. And as I said last week, some of you may be going through some hard times in your life. Some of you may be going through some difficulties. As we were in prayer this morning, Sister Marisol, she felt led to pray for the body of Christ. She felt led to pray for people who were going through hardship and through difficulty. And, you know, we have different degrees and different levels of hardship that we go through. And so one of the, one of the greatest downfalls for many believers is the maintenance of a wrong attitude, especially during difficult times that we face. One of the greatest issues that we have is that when we go through hardship, we have the wrong mindset. When we go through difficulty, we have the wrong mindset. And so what happens is we end up dealing with our situation the wrong way because of the wrong mindset that we bring into the situation. And so what the Apostle Peter here is doing, again, he is encouraging the church the right way, the way that the church should be encouraged through difficulty. And what I want to say is this, is that optimism is not always the correct attitude. Y'all didn't hear me. 
optimism is not always the correct attitude. Because a lot of times, especially in our day and age, everybody just wants to smile. Hello, somebody. When we're going through hardship, we just want to feel good about ourselves. We just want to feel good like everything is going to be okay. Well, the whole, the whole point is this. Sometimes you don't know when everything is going to be okay. And so to be optimistic, you know what, that, you know what happens? You begin to carry a weight and a burden that you don't need to carry. You know what that weight and burden is? You got to keep a smile on your face because you're a Christian. And y'all ain't saying nothing. See, so I have to be optimistic and I got to walk. I, I can't have a bad day because I'm a Christian. That's what optimism says. Optimism says I can't ever have a down moment. I can't ever have just, I just need to be alone because I'm supposed to be a Christian. So there's a certain way that I'm supposed to be. And we've been taught wrong. That is incorrect. Listen, I don't care how big your smile is. That doesn't mean your burden is any less. See, the thing is, Peter didn't just tell these people, hey, just smile through the pain. That's not what Peter said to them. Peter tells them some different stuff. And the reason why optimism is because, see, you know, we look at people who are optimistic and, you know, they see that the cup is the cup is halfway full. Right. That's the way that you see it. And glory to God. And listen, if you're an optimistic person, don't get discouraged. Amen. I know that won't happen to you. But anyway, just, you know, as as I'm saying this, I know you, you know, you might feel condemned for your optimism. I'm not. Listen, go ahead and continue to think that the cup is halfway full. Glory to God. I'm not telling you not to do that because we need you in our life. Amen. Hallelujah. But then there's other people that are just pessimists, right? Everything that they just see the negative, they won't even get up and go look for a job because they're like, it it ain't going to happen. And they'll count down for you 15 reasons why this is not going to work. Well, the time of year and this and, you know, it's crazy, you know. And, and so ultimately, you know, you have the people that are optimists and the people who are pessimists. But I just want I just want us to understand something that not, you know, not to just have optimism or pessimism, but I'm going to throw a word in there. And so for all of y'all that are taking notes, it's called biblicalism. All right. That's the word of the month. Glory to God. And let, let, me, let me give you the definition of this. And, and it, is, it, it is embracing the eternal truths that are found in the scripture, no matter what I'm facing. That is the definition. Glory to God. Because I know y'all going to write that down somewhere and I'm going to see it flashing one day. But here's the thing. As part of the dictionary, all right, that is very important for us that we understand that we don't need to be optimist or pessimist. We need to be biblical in the way that we think about stuff. We need to be biblical in the way that we view situations. Because here's the reality. When I'm a pessimist, I see the thing as halfway full. I mean halfway empty. When I'm an optimist, I see the cup as halfway full. When I'm a biblicalist, glory, there's another when you got two and two for one today, glory to God. When, when, when I am like that, what happens is whether the cup is half full, whether the cup is half empty, Jesus is with me. He's going to walk me through it. You see, that's what happens when you have the right mindset. And so it's okay to cry. It's okay to have a down moment. It's not okay to walk in depression. Hello, somebody. It's, it's not okay for you to just walk around all your life and just see everything that's, you know, just ho-hum and just everything is bad and it's never going to get better. That is not okay. But you are a human being that God has equipped with certain emotions so that way you could feel certain things and you could experience stuff. And you know what he wants you to do? Listen to this. He wants you to truly grow in his grace. He wants you to truly grow in the grace and the knowledge of who he is. And if you are just an optimist and you deny reality, you'll never experience the solution God wants you to experience. 
You'll never experience his grace. If you're a pessimist, you're just never going to go that route. You're never going to trust him through anything. You're never going to think he's going to see you through anything. And so ultimately, when Peter is communicating, he is talking to them about having the right mindset or the right attitude. And so this morning, the message is entitled Attitude Adjustment. So I think that we all can go ahead and sit back for a moment and think about, okay, I need an adjustment in my attitude in certain areas. And the apostle breaks down four areas that our attitude needs to be adjusted in. And what he starts off by saying is this. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves. When he talks about this word arming ourselves, it's talking about having a specific attitude or a specific mindset. And the word arm there, it means to be armed in, 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 in a military sense. And it is a picture of a Greek soldier or someone who is going and deciding or, or that, that is in the army and says, the fight that I'm about to fight requires heavy armor. This is the picture. Now, I want you to know when the, when, 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 when the Greek talks about or utilizes this word arm, there are two pictures. There is the soldier that dresses in light armor, and then there is a soldier who dresses in heavy armor. The picture that Peter uses and chooses to use is the one who is in heavy armor because he is communicating something, and he is saying that as Christians, we need to be as weighed down by the power of the gospel and what God has done daily reminding ourselves of the sufferings of Jesus that he made in our place so that way we can have the right attitude when we suffer. And so he chooses a picture. He says, don't just, you know, don't, don't, don't just put on light armor because it's more comfortable. Here is the thing. Lighter armor, much more comfortable. I can move much better when I'm in light armor. But when I'm in heavy armor, I may not move as swiftly, but I am more protected. And when we are going through difficulty, when we are going through hardship, when we are going through trial, we need to make sure that we are weighed down by the power of the gospel. That is what he's saying. He's saying we have got to have the right mindset. Again, not about being optimistic. It is about being biblical in the way that we think. It's not just about positive thinking. It is about seeing things the way that they are and allowing Jesus to see you through the things the way that they are and bring you into his glory and grace. This is what the scriptures teach. And so the first thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. We must have a militant attitude towards sin. We must have a militant attitude towards sin. Now, let me tell you what happens to us when we begin to go through suffering. One of the first things that we begin to do is we begin to cast off restraint, and we begin to decide, well, I'm going through this hardship so I can indulge in some sin. Why? Because that's what I used to do when I used to go through hardship, right? And so let me just give you some examples. So if you used to be the type of person that used to roll one up, hello, right? You get depressed, you get discouraged, what do you want to do? Roll one up again. Go chill by yourself, smoke once you can chill. Mm-hmm. Right? That may be your thing. That may have been the thing you used to do. Or, you know what? I just need to, I just need to, I just need to drink down a six-pack. Hello. Corona, Heineken, whatever it is, because that's the way that I deal with stress. That's the way I deal with situations. Other people, they didn't like to smoke. They didn't like to drink. They just like to go and do other things, you know, that, that make them relax. And so these other sinful things, whatever those things may be, here is the point you got to get. Is that what the enemy wants you to do is wants you to feel like, well, I'm suffering. Therefore, I can go ahead and indulge in sin because God is going to understand. Really. 
I can go on ahead and I can chill out and I can do what I want to do because I'm stressed. Listen, Jesus suffered in your place. He suffered unjustly. And he didn't go smoke one. Hello. He didn't go get a six pack. Hello. That Jesus didn't go to, you know what Jesus did? He went to the garden of Gethsemane and he cried out to God the Father. And you know what he said? He said, Lord, he said, if there is another way this can happen, another, and he said, if you can remove this cup from me, please do so. Not my will, your will be done. And he got up. He went back to check on his friends and said, man, y'all supposed to be with me in this. And what are they doing? Sleeping. It's like, y'all can't stay up for an hour? He goes back again, tells them to wake up. They go back to sleep. The if you read the Gospels, you see something that's very important. All of those people that were out there sleeping, you know what it says? That their hearts were heavy because of sorrow. Jesus was sorrowful, going through the agony of understanding what he was about to endure as far as carrying the weight and the wrath of God. And his disciples, they had some inclination that something was going on. They were sorrowful, and you know what they did? They fell asleep while Jesus went and cried out. See, that, 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 that's, like, that's like typical of people who decide that I'm going through stress, so I'm just going to be depressed and I'm going to sleep through everything. Hello? I'm going through hardship. And so you know what? You, you, you ever had that feeling like you just wish, you know what, I wish I could just go to sleep until this trial is over? Hello? It's okay to feel that way, just don't start doing it. Hello? Fight that by the grace of God. And so we see Jesus in this situation. What does he do? He's going through hardship. He's going through trial. He doesn't go and indulge in sin, but he conquers, overcomes sin by seeking the face of God, by pursuing God the Father and saying, God, I need your strength. You know what God does? God doesn't take the cup away from him. God sends angels that minister to him. God strengthens him to endure the cross, to endure the pain. And so he didn't need any stimulant in order to deal with this. He didn't need some kind of sin that is not going to do anything. Understand this, please, because you really got to get this with me. When we decide that we are going to indulge in sin, when we are going through hardship, you know what the result is? A moment of pleasure and then great condemnation. And what is the purpose? It is so the enemy can keep you from coming to the source of grace. It is so the enemy can keep you, okay, you're stressed, you're going through hardship, you know what's going to make you feel better. Go and do this. Go and indulge in that. Do whatever that thing is that you used to love to do. Once you do it, then you're going to feel better. And you know what? As soon as it's over, what do you feel? You feel like the biggest hypocrite? You feel like the biggest heathen? So you know what's the last thing you're going to do? Come to Jesus. That is his goal, is to keep you out of God's presence. We cannot be passive against the battle that we are facing against sin. Every one of us that is in this place, you know, most of us, some of us don't have a lengthy past, but most of us have a past of our sinful life, the way that we used to live. And some of us, we don't have that past, but guess what? There's a future, and the enemy wants to bring you into experiences you've never had. And so it's not always the past you're dealing with, it's culture. Because realize this, read with me, beginning in verse 1. I want, you to, I want you to see what Peter says here. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Verse 3, for we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in 
drunken lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. I want you to know that every single person, just like every single person that is sitting in here, not every single person in this place has ever gotten high, you know, with some type of drug. Not every single person in this place has went out there and started drinking and, you know, gotten drunk and been like that. Not every single person in this place has had illicit sex. Not every single person in here has done that. But our culture is doing that. Our society is doing that. And so ultimately what happens is, is that that is what the influence is. And so you go and you speak to someone when you're going through wrong situations, hardship. You can go to doctors nowadays. We're talking about that on Wednesday nights. And what happens? You go over there, you're depressed and discouraged. What do they want to do? They want to go ahead and give you some kind of drug to stimulate you. They don't want, they, they don't want to help the problem. They want to get you hooked. Right? In the name of help. So I'm going to hook you up. Hello. And then it's just legal, and then you become legally addicted instead of coming to Jesus. Now, listen, I don't expect the doctor to tell you to turn to Jesus unless he's a Christian or she is a Christian. But what happens is, in our society, there are certain things that, 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 are, that, are, that are prevalent in our days. And so what Peter does is he goes on ahead and he communicates to them and he gives them these six areas of sin that people must contend with. Three of them are personal, three of them are public. And so the way that he deals with this, he breaks it down. The first three he says, he says, in lewdness, in lust, and in drunkenness. And so these are personal issues, personal feelings, or personal desires. The word lewdness, it means unrestrained moral attitude. It is saying, you know what? It's an attitude that folks have that it is prevalent in our days where people feel like they can just do whatever they want to do. In their mind, they desire what they want to desire, and it's okay. That's what we're being taught, right? We're being taught that if you feel that, it's natural. If, you have, if you're a guy and you like guys, that's natural. If you're a girl and you like girls, and I don't mean just like them like friends. Y'all know what I'm talking about. If you like them, right, then that's natural. Hey, th that's okay. Wait a second. That is, being, that, is, that is having a lewd mind, a mind that is not morally restrained. And so it's an issue. It's desires that we have. He goes on to say the next word, and it is the word lust. When we think about lust, the word lust in and of itself simply means strong desire. But in the context where he places it, it means strong desire for what is forbidden. It is a strong desire for those things that God says no to. But again, these are issues of the heart. No, you, you can be a person who is lewd, and you know what? You can go to church. Hear this. You can be a person who has this lewd mindset, and you can go to church, smile, sing, clap, and nobody will ever know that because of something that's going on inside of you. It's something that's going on deep inside of your heart, and nobody will know. You can be a person who is battling with lust, and you just wait till no one's looking for you to look. Hello? As long as eyes are on you, eyes are up, everything is good. Eyes are not on you, wandering all over the place. Hello? Nobody knows, or the, you know, this person is so on the But here's the point. The point is, Peter's pointing out issues of the heart. He goes on to say the word drunkenness, and it means, excess, it means excessive insatiate desire to drink again this talks about desire you may get drunk you may be getting drunk by yourself but it's more than the act of this because he goes on later and he and he talks about these drinking parties which we'll deal with in a moment but he's talking about something that's inside of you there is an issue when you have to get your drink on hello there is a problem when you when when you have to when there is some I mean you're shaking glory to God Hello. There is an issue. There is a problem. That it should not be that way. 
But, the, but what Peter is pointing out is he says, there's some personal sin issues. You need to be weighed down with the gospel. And that way you can be delivered of that lewdness. You can be delivered of that lust. You can be delivered of that insatiate desire to drunkenness. You can be delivered of those things. And he goes on and he points out the public act. And the, and the first word that he uses there, which is the fourth one in the lineup, he says revelries. And what that word revelries is, it means a nocturnal and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows who after supper parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus or some other deity and sing and play before houses of male and, of male and female friends. And so the picture is what would happen is, and these actual two words go together, the word revelries and the word drinking parties. And what it's talking about is really where we get our present term orgies. And so what would happen is these people, you know, they're with their families. Everything is all good. After we're done with the family, we go out, we start drinking, and we get all crazy. This word drinking party, it means to drink in a way that you shouldn't, and at the end of it, act in an immoral way sexually. Sounds a lot like the drinking parties we have today, don't it? Think about it. What do you do? You go, get your drink on, do your thing, and what's up? Afterward, you're doing another thing. Hello. Why? Because you feel all right about that. Because you have done what? You've numbed your senses. You have now dealt with yourself in a way that you shouldn't. And so Peter is saying, this is what is going on all around you. This is what is happening within your days. And so these people, they would come, they would get all drunk and messed up, and they would go out in the streets, and they would honor their gods. And see, here's what you have to understand. Part of the worship of their gods was, part of, part of it was them getting drunk. Another part of it was them having sexual activity in a way that we know is ungodly. That was all part of worship of these pagan gods. It was, and see, here's the thing. This, this, this is the thing that you and I have to understand about this. It is that all of that activity today, we don't do it in a direction toward a specific god. That's our problem. Is that if we could say, well, you know what, when a person is out there drinking all over the place, getting drunk, doing all of these ungodly things, and a person is having illicit sex, if they were doing it in the name of a God, it would be easier for us to connect it with the last word, which is the abominable idolatries, which is false worship. But the, but the fact that we don't do that, what we don't realize is that the God that we're sacrificing to is self. When we do all of those things, when we live in these ungodly ways, when we disobey, when we approve of those things, what we are saying is, I'd rather worship self than worship Jesus. And so we come to that place where it's just idolatry. It's funny because when you look up the word idolatry or, or abominable idolatry, the word abominable means unlawful. And it says idolatry, the next word, which we know is false worship. But when we look at the abominable part of it, what they were saying is that some of the acts and the things that these people were doing, they were even unlawful in their society. They were even unlawful in the, in, around all the heathen people. They were still breaking laws. They were still doing things that didn't, that, that didn't honor the simple laws of the land. And we definitely know that all idolatry is what? It is worship of false gods. It is something that is abominable before God Almighty. What is idolatry? We think, again, we talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night for those of you that were here when we dealt with the word idolatry, and we talked about that. When we think of idolatry, we automatically think about some kind of statue or something like that that we come and we bow down to. Listen to me. Idolatry is much bigger than just bowing to some kind of statue or something. 
Idolatry is anything. There, there was a question that was asked in chapter 8 of the book, The Wake Up Call. And it was, what is it that God is trying to show you by the excuses that you make about things that could be holding you back? And here was the answer. The answer is this, is that sometimes when we are making excuses for stuff, that is an indication that there is something that we are excusing that battles for first place in our lives. Sometimes we want to participate in activities that we know we shouldn't participate in. We want to do things that we know we should not do, but we excuse them. And the point is that some of those things that we're excusing, they are either idols or potential idols in our lives. And idolatry, we worship. I was watching a show the other day, and, and there was a, it, it was a scene in the show, and what happened was there was a, a, a mom or a grandmother who was going to take her grandson to, to church. And the child's father said, but I was going to take him to a football game. And so he said, all right, well, I guess, you know, we'll take him to church. And so they go to church, they come out of church, and after church service and everything is done, you know, the father goes to the grandmother and says, you know, listen, um, you know, when I was growing up, um, on Sundays, that was a day that we went to the football field. And we all lined up together, and we had this great time on the football field. And the, and the grandmother says to the person, so what you're saying is football is your church. And he paused, and he said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Now, listen to me. You got to understand this. We don't see it like that. But I, I want you to think about just stuff. I mean, some people are so devoted to stuff like that, they don't realize that it's an act of worship. I've said this before. I haven't said this in a long time. Some of us are louder watching a football game, a basketball game, a fight than we are when it comes to worship of Jesus. I mean, we're yelling at the TV. They can't hear us. We're up in the crowd. They don't care. Hello, somebody. But we, we show more devotion. Some of, listen, we'll pay all kind of money to get a ticket to go somewhere. We won't even give. Hmm. <laughs> we will spend all kind of stuff. And what is all of that? That's all acts of devotion. And so the question is this, who is first and who are you living for? That is the question. Who is first? Who is it that we're living for? He says in verse 2 something that's very important. He says that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh or for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Literally what happened in verse 2, Jesus suffers. He dies in our place. And because of that, he frees us from the power of sin. Someone say amen to that. But here is something that you and I have to understand is that when we crucify our flesh, when we say, I will not indulge in sinful behavior because I am saying yes to Jesus, then here's what occurs. What occurs is my flesh is being crucified. I am dying to my desires. And what goes on next is I cease sinning. I cease living for myself and for the lust of men, but I live for the will of God. That's the question. Are you living for the lust of men or are you living for the will of God? Second point, please repeat this after me. We must have a patient attitude towards sinners. We must have a patient attitude towards sinners. Look at verse 4 to verse 6. It says, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. 
They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. As you and I live in obedience to Jesus, you know who that's going to offend? Anybody who we used to hang out with. Listen, you don't, you don't have to try to offend them. You don't have to go out of your way to offend anyone you used to hang out with. All you have to do is simply say, mm, I'm not feeling that. I, I can't do that. Any- what you do is, is on you, but I'm not going to do that anymore. I give you, I, I always remind you of, of my testimony. And when I first got saved, I didn't have any Christian friends. I mean, obviously, none of us usually that come to Christ have very many Christian friends. We may have a couple that may have been the one that led us to Jesus. I don't have any Christian friends. All my friends, non-Christians. And so what were they doing? Everything I used to do. And guess what? While I was with them, I wasn't doing it. So while they were in the car fogging it up, I was preaching Jesus. Seriously. While they were hanging out doing their thing, I was talking to them about Jesus. I told you all, our friendship lasted like two weeks. After I came to Jesus, they were tired of hearing about him. And because they couldn't get high, they couldn't sin the way that they wanted to without feeling guilty, right? And it wasn't because I was like, oh, you're going to hell. It wasn't like that. You want to know why? I, was, you know, I wasn't like that because my mother wasn't like that when she led me to Jesus. I don't, I don't even know that. I mean, I knew I was going to hell, so I didn't need my mom to tell me I was going to hell. Hello. Glory to God. I, 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 was, I was very clear on that fact. There was no question in my mind that I was going to hell. But when my mom ministered to me and she ministered the gospel to me and God transformed my life, I mean, it was, it was that way. She wasn't condemning the stuff I was doing. She, I knew those things were wrong. And so when I was around my friends, I was, I was simply just not doing what they were doing, talking about what I was reading in the Bible. They didn't understand half of what I was saying. I can guarantee you that. But the fact of the matter is, they didn't want to be around that. What happens? They, were, they thought it was strange. They thought it was weird. When you look at that word strange, it is something that is totally opposite. It, it, it's something that is foreign. It's something that doesn't belong. Why? Because everybody in culture is doing that. Everybody around us, see, this is the lie that we get sucked into. Everyone else around us is doing it, so you should be doing it. Everyone else around us is participating in this, so you should be participating in this. And so it says that they find it strange that you're not running in the same flood of dissipation. You're not running in the same way, the same lifestyle, the same way of thinking. Because of what? Because now you're some holier-than-thou person? No, because you met Jesus. He changed your life. No longer do you need those things. So when you walk for Jesus, with Jesus, you're going to offend folks. They're going to be offended. But here's the thing that you got to realize. We have to be patient toward them. Just because they reject what we're preaching or, we, or they reject how we're living, it doesn't mean that we just need to just sign, write them off and be like, I'm done with that person. Hold on a second. We are supposed to be evangelists at all times. All times. Even when they mistreat us. Even when they speak. See, they speak evil of us. They're like, oh, they think they're all that. You know, they make you feel bad standing up for Jesus, right? They make you feel bad because you say, man, I don't want to participate in that lifestyle. It, they speak evil of you. That's what it's saying here. See, y'all, y'all got to get delivered from that stuff. Because we get so confused, you know, because we stand against certain things. We stand for certain things. And because we get around there, and they're like, oh, you're judging me. No, I'm not. I've been judged, and I'm walking with Jesus. That's it. 
I'm not judging you. I'm living a life that is, there's, listen, there is nothing wrong with living a life that is righteous. There is nothing wrong living a life that is separated from sin. There is, listen, there is nothing wrong communicating that something is wrong with someone else's life. Hello, somebody. No, y'all ain't saying nothing. Because we feel like there's a, oh, you, you can't judge. Hold on a second. Time out, glory to God. You judge all the time. I love this example. If I'm looking at an apple and I say it's an apple, is that me judging the apple? Hello, I just judge it. You're an apple. Yes, you're an apple. I'm an idiot if I say, well, I don't know. You could be an orange or a banana. No, you're an apple. Is that a wrong judgment? No, that's an accurate communication of what is reality. And so when you say, that's not right, I can't live like that. How, see, here's the, here's, here's the issue. Here, here's the issue, y'all. We cannot try to clean the fish before we catch them. That's our problem. Is that we want people to be, be Christian before they meet Jesus. That's the problem. You can't, you, you, you can't make someone stop sinning. That's why you got to be patient with them. You need to share the gospel. You need to communicate and show them the gospel. So what does that look like? Every one of our friends, along with each of us, will face judgment. This is your motivation. Therefore, we must live as witnesses every day, preaching the gospel in our lifestyle. The way that we live, saying no to sin, saying I am not going to live like that. How you're going to live, that's up to you. What you're going to do, that is up to you. But this is the lifestyle that God has saved me to. And so now I am living this way. And then also in our our language so in our lifestyle we live the lifestyle that Jesus wants us to live here's what I want you to understand though salt is useless if it never touches anything else y'all didn't get that Here's the point. If I have a jar of salt and I leave it over here and then I have this great steak over here is the salt going to affect the steak miles away from the steak no, the salt has to be placed on the stake. What am I saying? You need to love Jesus more than you loved your old sin, and that way you can be in the lives of those people who don't know Jesus in a way that affects them for positive and not for negative. And so you live a lifestyle that communicates that you love Jesus. And then when they ask you why, you use the same language. You point to Jesus. You got to be patient because, listen, y'all, every one of us is going to stand before God in judgment. Some of us will be Christian standing before him in judgment, and some of us will not be Christian. And that's the bottom line. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, there are two, there are two lines. <laughs> there are two lines in this. There is the Christian line, and there is the non-Christian line. What do you mean, Bishop? You're talking about religion is the only way to God? No, Jesus is the only way to God, and if you walk with Jesus, you're a Christian. Hello. That is what I'm saying. I'm saying that there is one way to God, and it is through Jesus, period. Not good works, not how good you are, none of that stuff. We'll stand before him on judgment. And that's why we have to be patient and we have to be loving because I don't know about you, but I don't want any of my friends or any of my loved ones to have to be on the wrong line on judgment day. That's our motivation. That's why we're patient, even when they mistreat us, even when they talk bad about us. Even when they make us feel bad about living for Christ, we're patient with them. Amen? Verse 7, look at it with me. 
But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Repeat this after me. We must have an expectant attitude towards the Savior. So the first thing is this. We must have a militant attitude towards sin. The second thing is we must have a patient attitude towards sinners. The third thing is we must have an expectant attitude toward the Savior. He says in verse 7, he says it clearly. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus is going to return at any time. That's what he's saying. He's saying that, listen, you don't need to be living bound up in your suffering or in your hardship or in your situation. You need to be living for glory and honor of Jesus. He's saying the end of all things are at hand. And our expectation of Christ's return will motivate us during our times of hardship to do what? To go deeper into prayer. To go deeper into our relationship with God. That's what occurs when we are really expectant about Jesus, when we are really looking forward to the coming of Christ, the issue with us is that we get caught up in our circumstances and our situations. We're never looking forward to Jesus' return. We get so caught up. And listen, problems, situations, hardship, all of those things are real. All of those things are valid. But here's the point. The point is none of them are more important than the coming of Jesus. None of them are more important than the day that you and I get to meet him face to face. Because you know what? On that day, no more suffering, no more hardship, no more mistreatment, nothing else except joy, glory, and praise of God Almighty. He says that we should all have this mindset, understanding this. And what the enemy wants us to do is get us so caught up in our hardship that he deters us from our expectation. What is our expectation? It's Jesus. Our expectation is him and him alone. And so he goes on to say that we are supposed to do what? He says that we are supposed to be serious and watchful for the purpose or in our prayers. And so the first word serious, what does that word mean for us? How are we supposed to live as Christians? We are supposed to live self-controlled. Say self-controlled. Now say this with me. Self-controlled means even-tempered. It means that you need to be a person that is not blowing up all over the place. Hello, somebody. Now, now let, me, let, me, let me say this because this is very important for us as Christians. If you read like 1 Tim, Timothy chapter 3, you're going to see that the scripture talks about us as leaders, that we're supposed to be a certain way. And one of them is we're not supposed to be blowing, all, blowing up all over the place. Amen? But let me say this. I need you to get this. That goes for you as a Christian as well. See, because a lot of times we look at us, right? And I, 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 I'm guilty, amen, hello somebody, because I, I haven't always been standing up here. I sat in those seats, and I'm real quick to ridicule. But here's the thing that we need to understand is that he's talking to the church, and he's saying, church, be serious, be self-controlled, be even-tempered, be sober is what he's saying. Saying, be sober-minded. Don't allow yourself to be overtaken by emotions. When people hurt you, when people communicate wrong to you, don't be overtaken by those emotions. Don't be overtaken by those feelings. Don't, be over don't allow those things to overtake you. Why? I'm going to tell you why from personal experience. Because when I allow those things to overtake me, I can't pray. When I allow myself to become overwhelmed and angry and I allow myself to become moved emotionally, I can't pray. I can't pray until I repent. Hello. And then you know what I got to do? I got to think about who I blew up on because I need to fix it with them. Glory to God. I mean, seriously. 
Usually you don't blow up by yourself. You know, sometimes that happens. Some of us are wise enough to hang up the phone or to leave the situation and blow up. But most of the time, and I'm, again, I will just speak from personal experience. Most of the time we do not do it that way. We blow up right at the moment on the spot, and then we regret it later on. But the scriptures say in order for us to pray effectively here, what do we got to do? We need to be self-controlled. We need to be sober. And then we need to be watchful. And let me, let, me, let me explain to you why this should hit home really deep for you. Because I want you to remember who is writing this. Who's writing this book? Say Peter. Now, I want you to know who Peter is. He is one of the guys that was sleeping when Jesus was praying. So when he says, be watchful and be serious in prayer, he's the one who tried to chop someone's head off. Hello, somebody. He's the one who tried to, he was blowing up, not self-control. And he understood. I mean, Peter was overwhelmed with grief and condemnation. Because what? Because number one, when I should have been watching and praying, I was sleeping. Jesus is praying, rebuking me for, rebuking me for being asleep. He says in that same context, Jesus speaking to the disciples, he says that your flesh is what? Your flesh is weak. Your spirit is willing. And so Peter is talking firsthand now. He's saying, listen, you need to be sober. And so what happens? He's not watchful in prayer. So when the situation arose, what does he do? He automatically turns to carnal means to do what? To try to do business that God is not saying that he should do that way. Hello? This is what happens. And so he's saying, we need to have an expectation of the coming of Christ. And in that expectation, we need to be self-controlled. In that expectation, we need to be watchful in prayer that we'll be able to extend and, and further the gospel. Because without prayer, we can do nothing, church. The fourth point that we'll make here, and then I'm getting ready to close, is this. Say this with me. We must be fervent in our attitudes towards the saints. Look at verse 8 with me, and we'll read the remaining of the chapter. He says, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Notice he threw that in there, without grumbling, because some of us are hospitable, but we grumble. We'll talk about that. Glory to God. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what happens? When we go through hardship, when we go through difficulty, the first thing that the enemy wants us to do is he wants us to subject ourselves to sinful behaviors that we are only going to regret. That's what he wants us to do. So he wants us to be bound in sin that Jesus died for. And then if he can't get us there, then you know what he wants us to do? He wants us to treat unsaved people like they don't matter. He wants us to be offended with them. He wants us not to treat them the way that they ought to be treated as those who desperately need to hear the gospel and see the gospel in our lives. And if he can't get it there, then what he wants us to do is forget about the coming of Jesus. And you know what? The last thing that Peter points out here is he says, you know what's the next thing he wants us to do? Is he wants us not to be the way that we should be towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I can tell you this from firsthand experience. When people start going through hardship, the first place, and any person who's been in church long enough will know this. When people start going through hardship in their life, the first place that people cut off is church. The first thing we do, start going through financial problems. Guess what's the first place you'll cut? 
Listen, it, 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 it is a national, look, it is, it is a national statistic. I have it. I haven't sent it to y'all because I don't want to bother y'all with that. But it is, it is a statistic that during this, during this time of crisis and everything for churches, we talked about this a little bit, the, the biggest thing that is affected is what? Giving. Because people start getting worried about, well, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? And so what do we do? Automatically, well, I got to cut here. I can't, give, I can't give, give, give that. I can't do that anymore. It's the same thing with any other area, not just giving. I use that because that's an example that everybody can relate with. But here's the point. The point is you start going through hardship in your life, and you can't spend more time in church. You got to go do other things. You got to pull out from that, you know, not do that. This is what occurs. You start going through hardship. You start going through difficulty. You start experiencing this pressure. You start experiencing suffering. We start to, you know what happened? And I'm going to tell you why a lot of people do that. A lot of people do that. It is simply because they just don't trust God through their situation. And really, they start to blame him. So they're like, in their hearts, I'm not going to serve him. He's, he, he, he's allowing me to go through this. See, that's what they don't get, is that there is an underlying reason why we do that kind of stuff. Because I don't really trust you in this. Because I'm, I'm loving you and I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do and where are you at in the situation. So our hearts become wrong because it is not about anyone else. It's about Jesus. It's about him and what he's done for us on that cross and what he's doing in our lives even if we don't see it. As you and I endure hardship, we cannot abandon our love and service within the body of Christ. He says something really clearly. He says, above all things, have fervent love for one another. For, for one another. When you look at this word fervent, I want you to get the picture. For anybody, and, and I know not many of you have probably run track or anything like that, but the example or the picture that is given here for fervent, that word there, it is a runner who is stretching with all of his ability or with all of her might, and they are running as hard as they can. It is like the last leg of the race, and they are giving everything that they have in order to get to the, to the finish line and win the race. And now, for me, I've never been a runner, but in other things, in other areas, there's just a moment where it's like a gut check right it's just a moment where it's like okay you got to pull this thing out and you got to get the you got to press through whatever it is you know what he's saying here he's saying above all things you need to be like that Christian love for others needs to be that way you need to be stretching and striving towards loving on your brothers and sisters in Christ even when that's the last thing that you want to do so how does that stretching look well, he gives us a few things. He says, number one, in forgiveness. That's where that stretching looks. That, that, that's like the big stretch for a lot of people. That's like the super stretch. That's like the high jump, glory to God. We have this, we, we, we have to, he says here, he says, having this fervent love for one another, he said, because what? Love covers a multitude of sins, or the book of Proverbs says, covers all sin. Love covers. What did Jesus do on the cross? He demonstrated love and did what? Cleansed us of our sins. He cleansed us of our sins. And so in our love, one for the other, we demonstrate that. We are being fervent in love when what? When we are forgiving one another. Okay? He moves on from forgiving. He says to be hospitable without grumbling. Glory to God. Now what is, what, what, what is that all about? He's saying, be nice. In those days, I'll give you the picture of it in those days. In those days, it was customary for people to go into their homes, have meals, and leave the door open just in case someone walked by who needed to eat. That was a custom. Obviously, in our days, it's not like that, right? 
Another custom was, in those times, there, were, there weren't a whole bunch of hotels and places for people to come and stay when they came into town. And so what they did was, they opened their homes as Christians. Christians were coming in to the city. People were coming. He's saying, be hospitable without grumbling. What is the grumbling part? See, because a lot of us, we know how to be hospitable. Hallelujah. We know how to serve people, invite people into our homes. But then when they leave, we complain because they're such a mess. Them kids. So y'all just got delivered right there. See, I felt that deliverance. It was like, oh, glory to God. That is grumbling, hallelujah. Listen, we all, we, all, we all need a little bit of deliverance from grumbling, hallelujah. All of us, we do stuff. You know, these people, they always come over. They never bring a dessert. Hello, stop telling them not to. Because you know how it is. You folks ask, what can I bring? Oh, don't bring anything. Just come hungry. Then you leave and they're talking about you. Hello. Tell them, bring a dessert, glory to God. Something. The issue is, we have to have that right heart. If we are fervent in love, if we are fervent in love, then we are forgiving one another, and we are hospitable. And so listen, it doesn't, I mean, it's different. We live in a different day and age, different time. But it does not mean that we should not be hospitable. Hello. And we should not be helpful to those who need help. We should be helpful to those who need help. And he's talking about having a fervent love for our brothers, for one another. He's making it clear. He's talking about those of the household of faith, those who are part. You should have this fervent love. And then he goes on and he says the third thing there. He says, in using your gifts, say using your gifts. And so you got to be forgiving. Fervent in love, you're stretching. To do what? To go on ahead and forgive others. Fervent in love, you're stretching to be hospitable. That means that you got to get out of your box. I've said this before. i say it again. You need to find someone that you don't know. Invite them to your house, even though they have six kids. Glory to God. Even though your Sundays are sacred. Hallelujah. I know. I know you don't want all that in your house. But listen. Bring glory to Jesus, be hospitable to someone. You can't do it on Sunday, invite him over on Monday, just make it happen, amen? amen? And then he says, and then he says, all of us have been given some kind of gift. And he says, we need to use those gifts for what? For God's glory, for the edification of one another. This is another area that we stretch in because what happens? Here's, here's what happens in church. Churches are notorious for this. We are notorious, and I say we because it is we, we are notorious for having a, a, a little amount of people serving wholeheartedly, doing a whole bunch of work, and other people who are not doing that. And what does that cause? That causes burnout. That causes people to become overwhelmed. They become taxed. They become tired. And listen, here's my encouragement for those of you who are taxed and tired. Give it all to Jesus. I know that was like not real spiritual for some of you, but listen to me. Give him glory. Give him honor that he has gifted you because someone else is not as gifted as you in that area. They're gifted, just not in that area where you are. I know some, listen, I, I've been in ministry for like, I don't even know, probably like 14 years, something like that. And I can tell you something. I know what it's like to work hard and not feel appreciated. I know what it's like to work hard and be like, hello, can someone else come and give a hand? I know what that's like. And it's tough. But you know what I realize? It's all for the glory and honor of God. He has gifted me. And what happens to us is we serve, we get burnt out, and you know what we do? We become bitter. And we don't want to serve anymore. 
we, we, we serve, we, you know, we, we're, we're all wholehearted, we're in it, and then we get burnt out, unappreciated, because there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes on. We get bitter, and then what do we want to do? I love you, but I'm going to sit down and just chill. That's not the way that the Bible says we're supposed to be. That's not the way the scriptures say we're supposed to be, not at all, Right? Because God has gifted us for what? Read it with me. I mean, just, just, just look what he says. He says, if anyone speaks, verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him do what? Let's go back to verse 10. As each one has received a gift. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, you have received a gift. And then tell him, now read on. Ministering it to one another as good stewards of the manifold, the many types of God's grace. And listen, this is not saying, and please know my heart in this, this is not saying that you need to serve in six different ministries. That is not what I'm saying. That is not what I'm saying. You have this gift of administration, you're going to administer in every ministry. That would be crazy. That is not what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is find somewhere to serve the body of Christ. Because if you are not, I want you to understand this, you are being a bad steward. Say bad steward. Say, bad steward. See, y'all sound like sheep, right? Bad, right? Bad steward. If you are gifted, listen, if you are gifted, and, I, and, and let me, let me, let me, let me qualify, because i got to qualify all this stuff. Let me say this. There are some seasons you need to rest. Say, there are some seasons of rest. But a season, say that, is not a lifetime. Hello. Huh. I have seasons of rest. You know what they're called? Vacation. Hello. Glory to God. Y'all, I know y'all don't like that. Praise the name of Jesus. Listen, there are some seasons that we go through. And so there's times we have those moments. But here is the point. The point is that we need to make sure that we are being faithful stewards with what God has given us. Because you know what's going to happen to us when we stand before him on judgment? We're going to have to give an account for what we did with those gifts. And we're going to either be the one that multiplied the gift, poured it into other people's life, blessed people. We're going to be the one that just, like, buried that somewhere and be like, here you got what you gave me. Like, oh, great. <laughs> it's not a good place to be. That's actually a scary place to be because when you think about that story, Jesus actually called them wicked, lazy servant. So you wonder if you even love Jesus. I'll leave that there with you. Mm-hmm. He says, if anyone speaks, he gives two categories of gifts. He said, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability. I love that word ability because that word ability is power, strength, and it actually means physical ability. And so he's saying, if you have a certain ability to serve, you have a certain area, a certain way that you can serve, then you need to do that as a minister unto the Lord. And I close with this, or with this statement, a body of believers built up and bound by the love of God is the greatest weapon against the enemy. When we are built up by the gifts and talents and abilities that we all have, we become the greatest weapon in the hands of God against the enemy. To do what? To extend the gospel because that's what it's all about. And here's the question. Who is it that the glory belongs to in my life? The end of that scripture in verse 11 says this. It says, that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong 
the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. To whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So to whom does the glory and dominion belong to in your life? Is it to Jesus or is it to you? So I'll stand to our feet and bow our heads, please. And I just want to pray for us today. Father, I thank you, Lord God, for each of my brothers and my sisters that are here today, Lord God. And I thank you for their hearts. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that even as you have spoken to us, that we would really let that question resonate in our hearts. Does the glory and dominion belong to you? Or does it belong to someone else? Does the glory and dominion belong to you? Because if it does, God, then we will serve you with our whole hearts. We will care about those who don't know you, God, and we will seek you passionately, Lord God. And Lord, we will fight the good fight of faith against sin. But Lord, whatever areas that we may be falling short in our lives, may you have mercy toward us. May you have mercy toward us, Lord God, that we would be humble before your presence, that you would purge us of those things that hinder us. God, you see the hearts of my brothers and sisters. And Lord God, I just pray for those that are hurting right now. I pray for those that are going through hardship, my God. I pray for those that are facing difficulty right now in their lives, that are dealing with broken hearts, that are dealing with hurt, Father God, that are dealing with offenses. Heavenly Father, that are going through these hardships. Lord, I lift them before you right now, and I pray for your grace upon their lives, Lord God. I pray that your spirit would fill them, dear Lord. I pray that you, Heavenly Father, would liberate them of every hurt of every pain father God of all confusion all doubt Lord God that you would help them Lord not to think optimistically Lord God but to think biblically dear Lord God to trust that you are with them through whatever they are going through my God Lord I pray in the name of Jesus that your kingdom come Lord and that your will would be done in each of our lives in this place may we bring you glory and may we bring you honor